for our Good Friday service. I mentioned to you, those of you who were here, that the book of 1 Corinthians is a wonderful testament, all of it really, to the culminating truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. As I was meditating last week on that which I would share with you this morning, I was looking through 1 Corinthians, and as I was reading the first portion of this great letter of Paul to the believers in Corinth, ancient Greece, I was struck with some words that kept repeating themselves. And as I got all the way through and into then chapter 15, which is just one chapter shy of the end of the book, and in many ways is sort of the theological capstone of the book itself, 1 Corinthians 15, the whole chapter being on resurrection, I saw those same words repeated. And so as I traced those words through 1 Corinthians, especially in the early part, chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, and then in the latter part, as the capstone, chapter 15, I thought over and over and over again about these four words and the meaning they convey. You say, well, get on with it. What were those four words? Preach, power, gospel, and grace. Preach, power, gospel, and grace. And then I, of course, thought about the fact that we preach the power of the resurrected Christ as the gospel by grace. That's a, that's a capsule of the message we preach. In fact, if we were to title the message this morning, it would be our message of first importance. There's no greater message than this message of the preaching of the gospel by grace in and by the resurrected power of Jesus Christ. So if you will, turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We went over ever so briefly on Friday night, Good Friday, and now for Great Sunday, this concept of the first two of these words, preach and power. And let me show you how many times these words are repeated and the profundity of them. For instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, speaking of this concept of preach or preaching, I want you to notice that three times in chapter 1 alone, the word preaching appears. Now, if you want a quick definition, preaching, of course, is something that is conveyed, something that is taught, something that is proclaimed, something that is heralded. And, of course, we're talking about the gospel, the gospel of God's free grace. And it is heralded, it is preached, as it is today by that same message of that which was preached in the first century. 
So for all of these centuries, in the first century, it is the preaching of the same message, and it is so in the 21st century. This is our message, and it is a message of first importance. Notice the word preaching in chapter 1, verse 17. Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its, what? Power. Power. There's preach and power. We, We herald the message of the gospel not by trying to have an admixture of the power of the gospel and the eloquence of my voice. My voice, though it must be a voice, a herald, though I must be a herald, is in a sense inconsequential as something that will draw you to the power of the cross. Inconsequential, inconsequential in this sense, that it's not my technique. It's not my oratory. It's not the, the beauty or eloquence of my words that is the key that unlocks the door of the human heart. It's the power of the gospel itself. It's the preaching of such a gospel. The the gospel can be preached by someone who is extremely eloquent, who has great diction, who is very articulate. And it can also be preached by someone with little to no education and who, by preaching a gospel even while stumbling over their words, can bring the same person to Christ. The preaching of the Word of God and its attendant power by the Holy Spirit. What kind of power? The very power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That kind of power. The power of the dynamic ministry of the Holy Spirit to open blind eyes and unstop deaf ears. We do not preach anything else but the gospel, and certainly not with words of eloquent wisdom like those in the Greek culture of that time who were always looking for the eloquence of the speaker irrelevant to the content of his message. Paul says, I do that because I don't want the cross to be emptied of its power. Look at verse 21 of this same chapter. The Apostle Paul says, For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, that is, worldly wisdom, the wisdom of this earth, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. You see, what the world largely thinks, especially as to what I'm doing right now, what the world largely thinks of what I'm doing in my preaching of the cross as nothing more than folly. Folly. In fact, you can hear the snickering of the crowd in your mind's ear because to speak of a Savior who dies a wretched death on a cross is unthinkable. Who, who wants to worship a Savior who comes to die? Who, who wants to worship something as weak 
as someone who can't live long enough to vanquish all of his foes and to proclaim victory to his followers. It's shameful. It's folly. It's ridiculous. It's it's something I'll never consider, the world says. And Paul says, isn't it so ironic that through the message of the folly, quote-unquote, that we preach, men and women are believing and are being saved. And it happens through the preaching. Look at verse 23. Verse 23, but we preach Christ. There's that word again. We preach Christ. We herald Christ, and we preach Him crucified. And Paul acknowledges it's a stumbling block to Jews, and it's folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and Christ, the wisdom of God. What the world sees as folly, we see as salvation. What the world sees as weakness, we see as the very power of God through the risen Christ. We see the very power of the Holy Spirit opening those ears to hear the message of the truth. And when we hear such a message, we come to God's place of worship and we worship this risen Christ. Let the world call it folly. We shall call it the very power of God and the very wisdom of God. This is preach. We're going to get to where preaching comes in in 1 Corinthians in a moment. But I want you also to see how many times this word power, and I've already mentioned it a couple of times, but it's mentioned seven times in the first four chapters. The power of God. You see it there In verse 17, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Look at verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, that is delivered from our sins, it is the power of God. It's the power of God. I read it to you just a moment ago, verse 24. Christ, the power of God. He says it again. He says it a fourth time in chapter 2, verse 4, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit, capital S, in demonstration of the Holy Spirit, and of power, the power to raise spiritually dead persons to life, the power to raise Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 5, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. A fifth time. And then look over at chapter 4, verse 19. Paul says, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, referring to coming to the Corinthians to minister to them, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people. Uh, These are those who are infiltrating the Corinthian church and are talking about a different kind of message. To not talk of these arrogant people, but to find out about their power, which means that in every place you go to preach the gospel message, there's going to be a counterfeit power. 
They're going to be people who are going to believe and assume and therefore in their methods try to bring you a power that cannot save. But through the eloquence of their wisdom, through their manipulations, they'll present to you a kind of message that seems to have its own inherent power, like the power of the gospel, and they want you to believe such a sham message so that you are actually not saved in the way the Bible speaks, but that you're following a false gospel through their power, the power of their words, the power of their manipulation. And Paul says, I'm going to come and I'm going to find out about these arrogant people and the power that they use, but I want to tell you something, verse 20, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power, in real power. You say, well, how can I differentiate between the two? How can I see that which is counterfeit as over against that which is true? Because we don't just have talk. We have talk and power. You say, what kind of power? Here's the kind of power I'm talking about. The kind of power, the very resurrection power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead bodily, the kind of power, that kind of power, that resurrection power that actually changes your life. I was a non-Christian as a young lad, a young older teenager, and I was walking my own way, and I was being influenced by a mother who was a part of the cult, the Jehovah's Witnesses. And that kind of influence and that kind of arrogance of so-called power could not change her nor me. But when I, as a college student, began to read the gospel, reading the very gospel, the gospel of Matthew that I read earlier in our service, and over a couple of months of time, the Lord took off the spiritual cataracts from my eyes and the deafness of my ears, and as I continued reading for month after month as a freshman in college, the veil was lifted, and I understood the very power of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and in that time frame, I was changed. And 40 years later, even though I look so young, Forty years later, that power is still resident within to change my life. And you know exactly what I'm talking about, those of you who are true Christians, those of you who love the Lord Jesus Christ, those of you who have been changed by the power of the gospel, and that change of gospel power has continued to change your life even in your pursuit of holiness before God. And you've changed, and you continue to change. And there's no counterfeit for such a change. There's no manipulation by the eloquence of anybody's words and and anybody who tries to sell you a bill of goods about what it means uh, to be a Buddhist, uh, what it means to follow Confucius, what it is to follow a cult, even masquerading as followers of Christ. You don't even have to, to have the name Baptist or Presbyterian of the Orthodox sort. You only need to have Christ crucified, that power. And when you do, you have the very power to be changed from the inside out. That's preach, and that's power. 
And do you know that it's repeated in a crescendo fashion in 1 Corinthians 15? Turn there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This has been a ringing theme throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, and I dare say it's a ringing theme throughout the entirety of the New Testament. Preaching. Powerful work. And now also gospel and grace. Preach and power, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, reiterated here, and gospel and grace. And if we had time, and I really do wish we would have time, I would have shown you from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 also repeated uses of the word gospel and repeated uses of the word grace. Even in chapter 1, verse 1, grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to you. The the grace that is in you, those of you who are in Christ Jesus. That's how the book of 1 Corinthians begins. It's talking about grace. And when Paul talks about preaching, he's talking about preaching the gospel of God's grace. And he does so here in this culminating chapter. Here it is, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm just going to concentrate on the first 11 verses, and we're going to go through them very, very quickly. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers of the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Did you see the word gospel there? The gospel which I preached to you. And in your translation, there are, unless you're looking at a different translation, four uses of the word which. It's a pronoun in this context, this pronoun. Four pronouns with the word which, which can actually allow us to allow the biblical text itself to do our outlining for us this morning. Notice verse 1 again. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, and there should be And the ESV doesn't have it, but it is in the Greek text of the gospel which I preached to you. That's number one. Which you received. That's number two. In which you stand. That's number three. And by which you are being saved. That's number four. So let the text do its outlining for you. What's the gospel? What's the gospel? Well, the gospel is something that Paul was duty-bound to preach. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. So the first thing that he's going to talk about in this context is the effect of the gospel in our lives. For those of you who might be visitors with us today, we're talking about the gospel because it is a message of first importance. We will be talking about the resurrection and verses 12 of 1 Corinthians 15 all the way through to the last verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 56, it's all about the resurrection. This is the setup. This is the preamble. Uh, This is the explanation. This is the explosion of gospel material that brings you into an understanding of the pinnacle of such a gospel, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But first, we've got to know about the gospel and its effects, and this is what he says. Notice, the gospel which I preached to you, the gospel which I preached to you, the gospel must be heralded. It must be communicated. 
Every single Christian, not just the preacher, not just the preacher with a capital P, not just the communicator, but every single Christian is duty-bound to communicate the gospel that you want in the legacy of your lifetime to be what Paul says to the Corinthians, the gospel which I heralded to you. You want to stand, Mr. or Mrs. Christian, before God one day to give an account of your life and you want to say something like this, people in my sphere of influence, people in my sphere of impact, it was the very gospel of Jesus Christ which I heralded to you. Now, is that convicting? I hope it is. I hope it is for me. Because this is the only way that the gospel is promulgated. This is is what the gospel message is. It is to be communicated. And the preferable communication is here both in written form, as Paul gives it, and then as I communicate it to others who may not know the Bible or may not have any exposure to the Bible. The gospel I preach to you. Notice the second which, which you received. Paul is saying, I preached the gospel to you and you received it. It doesn't just mean you received the words, you embraced it. You embraced such a gospel. Now look, I have read 1 Corinthians like you and I see that the Corinthians were at times a very sad lot. They had a lot of problems in the church in Corinth. In fact, from chapter 5 up to this very point of chapter 15, almost the entirety of the book is Paul spiritually spanking the Corinthians. And you're going to say just like me at times when you read a book like this, these people are Christians? And the answer is, yes, for those who were truly in Christ with albeit all of their problems, received the gospel and the power of God over an endurance of time was changing them slowly, sort of like us, slowly but surely. Let not there be a 4th Corinthians or a 5th Corinthians that describes ourselves because the picture might be a whole lot worse. But if you receive, if you embrace this gospel, then it does something for you, not just to you. And what does it do for you? Look at the third which, in which you stand. You see, when when the gospel comes to me and God's grace becomes operative in my life, the very fact that I continue to be a Christian is because the gospel is something in which I'm banking my whole eternal destiny upon. It's a gospel in which I stand in grace. It's a gospel in which there is standing room only. And then fourthly, he says, and by which you are being saved. You say, well, aren't you saved at the beginning? Yes, you are. And you're continually being saved, and you will one day be forever saved. And this is the being saved of you and me working out our sanctification, our holiness, so on the final day as to be forever 
saved. You say, well, isn't that the cross? Isn't that the gospel message? Yes, it is, and it includes you and me in our cooperation with God by grace to continue to live the Christian life successfully all the way to the end. It is a gospel by which you are being saved. And then notice the qualifier, if you hold fast, if you cling to the word which I preached to you, the word of the gospel. And then notice, dash, unless you believed in vain. If, unless, if, unless, hmm, if, unless, perhaps there were those in Corinth, who were just simply attending, sat in a a chair, maybe brought a Bible with them, maybe bowed their heads when everybody else prayed. Maybe they put something in an offering as it was passed by. Maybe they had some level of service, but their heart had not yet been affected by the gospel. The power was still outside of them. Indeed, even this word vain, unless you believed in vain, could actually be translated without due thought, without careful consideration. Perhaps some of you are here today and you say, well, I was raised in a Christian home. I'm a part of a Christian family. Or I've read a Bible once or twice. Or I have attended church services every Christmas and every Easter very faithfully. Or I've had even more involvement. But you're actually living a self-defeated life as a pattern, as a habit, because you don't have the resident power of the Holy Spirit in your life to change you from the inside out and you struggle, and you've never seen the unbroken chain of sin and its dominance in your life. Perhaps this is for you, the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain, unless you've not taken careful consideration, you've not worked hard at thinking through the implications of the gospel. Well, I want to encourage you, please take careful consideration of the gospel. We talk about resurrection, and we should. This is the day for it, every day, but especially this day. But the resurrection was preceded by the entombment, the burial, and that was preceded by the death of Christ on the cross. And and those things are what Paul begins to say now in verse 3. And here we have a conjunction. For that. Don't you love the symmetry of the text of Scripture? For I delivered to you as of first importance. And that's where we get the message. Our message of first importance. There's no greater thing. There's no greater thing to talk about on Resurrection Day than this message that is for us as Christians, of first importance. There's there's nothing greater. There's nothing higher. There's nothing that supersedes this. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, what I also embraced. First that, that 
Christ died for our sins. Now, he's not talking about what the gospel does for me, but what the gospel is in and of itself. And here it is. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. What Scriptures? In this context, the Old Testament Scriptures. And someone says, hey, pray tell me, where is Christ in the Old Testament Scriptures? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) Turning your Bibles to Luke 24. Luke chapter 24. I'm going quickly. I'm going quickly. Me, the cross-referencing king, I shall only give you two. And the first one is here, Luke 24. And this is the Christ of the Old Testament Scriptures, spoken by none other than Christ Himself, by the resurrected Christ. This is such a wonderful story. Luke 24, beginning, say for instance, in verse 15. While they were walking, it was two disciples, one of them named Cleopas, followers. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus Himself, the resurrected Jesus, He drew near and went with them. Can you imagine such a thing? Jesus had died, he was buried, he was resurrected on the third day, and after that, uh, these two disciples, one unnamed, one Cleopas, they're walking on the road about seven miles, the road to Emmaus, from Jerusalem, and while they're walking there, Jesus shows up. Verse 16, I want you to notice this carefully, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. By whom? By God himself. Why? Let's read on. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? In other words, aren't you clued in? Haven't you heard about the most agonizing incident that's happened around here in a long, long time? And Jesus said to them, verse 19, what things? Of course he knew, but he wanted them to articulate it. What things? Tell me. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. I mean, all that, that's a fact. They're just giving the facts. But we, we Jews, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Implied, but that, now that hope is gone. That hope is lost. You can see how the Jews of Jesus' day thought, no, no Messiah comes to die. No Messiah comes but to do anything but take over. So they're sad. So, yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who who said he was alive. You see, remember that was that angel that we read about in Matthew 28 who was was sitting on top of the tomb, the, the stone that he rolled away from the tomb. 
uh, some of those who were with us went to the tomb, verse 24, and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Isn't that an interesting thing? Was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer these things and enter into His glory? What's His glory? It's the resurrection. It's the ascension. It's the coronation. That's His glory. And I love verse 27, and beginning with Moses, first five books of the Old Testament, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's the middle section, at least as it is orchestrated in our Bibles, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. What a conversation that must have been. Verse 30, when he was, later of course, at table with them, table fellowship, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, a a, a symbolic reference, of course, to that which has just occurred. The body of Jesus given, like the bread, the wine, just like his blood shedding. So he gave it to them. Verse 31, And their eyes were, what? Opened. Who opened them? God Himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 16, their eyes were kept from recognizing them. Now their eyes were open and they recognized Him. And He vanished from their sight. And I would have said, no, 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 no. Come back, come back. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while He talked to us on the road, while He opened to us the Scriptures? And so what did they do? They rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Jesus revealed by the very symbolism of the breaking of the bread who he is. Verse 38, Jesus uh, appeared to them again. He stood among them and he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see for a spirit does not have the flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you eat? Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. No ghost, no spirit does that. Human being does that, and this resurrected human being does that. Verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and now the Psalms Those poetic portions of the Old Testament must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. 
and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. No wonder, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And notice what he says further. The second that, verse 4, 1 Corinthians 15, 4, that he was buried. Jesus covered that. That he was raised on the third day. Jesus covered that. That's the third that in accordance with the Scriptures. Jesus is saying that in Luke 24 and verse 5. And that, the fourth that, he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. It's all there. It's all there. This is the gospel that Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. You say, that makes a lot of sense, and I believe the facts about it. But remember, receiving is embracing. It's holding fast. It's holding tightly. It's not just a mere intellectual assent. It's also betting, pleading, believing, hoping, trusting, relying upon the the crucified, buried, risen Jesus Christ for my eternal destiny. This is this is what I believe. This is the gospel. And verse 6 says, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, that's the Lord's brother, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born. I wasn't born with the others. I was born later, Paul says. He appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy, notice his humility, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And now we move from gospel to grace, our last word, verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am an apostle. By the grace of God, I preach this message which I have given to you. By by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace, second time he mentions grace, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, any other gospel worker, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Third mention of grace. Verse 11, whether then it was I or they, these various preachers, these various heralds, he says this, end of verse 11, So we preach, so we preach, and so you what? So you believe. Do you believe? Do you believe? Only your heart can reveal the true answer to that question. You say, well, there's a lot packed in to preach power, grace, a gospel and grace. There's a lot packed in there. Oh, yes, there is. And one other cross-referencing passage as we close, 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm just going to read it, and then we'll close. This is amazing. This is amazing. If you want to trace through your Bible in just two places, 1 Corinthians and 1 Peter, you have preach, power, gospel, and grace. That's, 
That's a marvelous symmetry. It's a marvelous continuity between the 27 books of the New Testament. And Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's power to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, your believing, we preach and you believed, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. We haven't seen the resurrected Christ. And I can hear the naysayers. You've never seen this man you say you're banking on for your eternal destiny. Though I've not seen him, I love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the what? The grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who what? Preached the the good news. That's what gospel means. Preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Oh, my dear friends, what a glorious Good Friday we had. But what a great Sunday today is. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ means that the gospel of God's saving grace through the very power of resurrected life that means the Holy Spirit opens up blind eyes and deaf ears to the truth that we preach and you believe. And when you do, it is all my friends, nothing of our own doing, but it is the sheer grace of Almighty God. Amen and amen. Let's pray together. Father, this is a resurrection message. There's power in the preaching, inherent power, not the preacher himself, but the power of the message. It opens up eyes and ears to the truth that I am one of those sinners that Paul alludes to, and I was unworthy to receive any grace from you, Heavenly Father. But you in your marvelous plan and purpose open such eyes and ears so that I might hear the good news 
of the gospel of God's grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit opening my eyes, just like Jesus opened Cleopas' eyes and the other disciples' eyes and ears to understand the gospel in the taking of the bread. They understood. He opened their eyes to see it, and you've opened our eyes to see the gospel of the grace of God and the powerful resurrection truth that Jesus is alive. And so we preach, and so must all men, by obligation and responsibility, believe. And for those of us who believe, we give you all praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, obtaining as the outcome of our faith the salvation of our souls. In Jesus' glorious name, by resurrection, amen and amen.